The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, press control alt.net and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 333 with guests Jeremy Miller and David Larrabee, recorded live Tuesday, April 1st, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says, he who laughs last, thinks the slowest, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here in New London, Connecticut tonight. And uh, Richard Campbell, how are you, sir? I am doing well. You know, we uh, we say the same sentence every show, at the beginning of every show. Yeah. Hey, I wonder if people... Carl and uh, Richard. Yeah, Carl and Richard. I'm Carl, that's Richard. Yeah. Wow. One day we're going to do... We're going to mess you up. We're going to say, hey, it's Ed and Chris. Penn and Teller. <laughs> George and Gracie. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I uh, realize that I always ask you how you're doing, but I never say how I'm doing. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty crappy. Why is actually. that? No, <laughs> doing fine. I have been working on my um, MIDI library. Oh, you've been MIDIing it up. I've been getting SMS progress reports. Musical instrument digital interface. Nice. I have a I have a library. I'm working my way towards the audio stuff, which is more uh, difficult. Although I do have a low level audio class too that I've been working on for years, actually. A coon's age. Yeah, but this MIDI thing, we use it in the band. Um, it's a, essentially a router, so it routes input controller data to uh, software synthesizers. And I uh, just, you know, I just did a little refactoring, and I made it more versatile. Now I can have multiple inputs and mix them together and multiple outputs. So uh, it's been a lot of fun, and I've just, you know, it's always fun to get my hands dirty writing code. And, uh, yeah. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. All right. Let's get into Better Know Framework. All right, sir. What do you got for me? Well, um, I want to go back and visit uh, a namespace that has a lot more in it than we covered 
in the early part of Better Know Framework, which is system.diagnostics. Ah. Specifically, I want to talk over several shows about the trace namespace, system diagnostics trace. Actually, it's not a namespace. It's a class. Okay. But there's lots of stuff in the system diagnostics trace class. Um, and I'll just start with the um, the idea is that you can put these trace lines in your code, trace.write or trace.write line, and you can use those to, you know, you sort of, if you've been ever, ever used the, you know, console.write line, you know, for writing to the output window. Well, trace.write line will do that too, but what's great is you can plug in these listeners in the config file, and I can say I want to write to a text file, or I want to write to a log, or I want to write somewhere else, and uh, the listener decides where that trace output goes, or if it goes anywhere. Cool. So uh, that's all I'm going to say right now about Trace, but on the next show, we'll talk about how to hook up a listener and uh, give you a few more pointers. Sounds like you've been uh, utilizing this class lately there, Mr. Franklin. As a matter of fact, I have. I yeah, I have the Trace uh, statements sprinkled all over the MIDI stuff because, obviously, it's real time and you want to see what the data is, uh, you know, what data is happening. Sure. No, it makes perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. Data doesn't happen, of course, but what data is being received and sent? <laughs> Let me clarify that for those who are on Data drugs. just happens, man. So those who are taking medication. <laughs> Speaking of medication, you got an email from a fan? I do indeed. I have an email. You know, you know it's funny. Uh, I got to call out Hilton Giesenau. Hilton Giesenau. Yes, South from Africa. South Africa. And, and let's face it, he sent us a bunch of emails, and, uh, and he wrote us a novel this time around. Yeah, but he also has never gotten any swag. Never sent him swag. So, I, you We're know, sorry. Hilton, I can't read your whole email. It's really long, and and you rant for a while in here. But there was one particular piece I wanted to call out, and uh, it was in reference to Kevin McNish's show on uh, DSLs, on domain-specific languages. Mm-hmm. And the he's con- uh, Hilton's comment here was, uh, with regards to code generation, that's accomplished via a code generation to engine called T4. Uh, which is short for Text Templating Transformation Toolkit. This consists of ASP Classic-like files with a mix of pure text and script that combines to execute and produce code. It's conceptually very similar to CodeSmith or My Generation Templates. What's cool with T4 is it is now included with Studio 2008, which means you don't even have to install a SDK to use it. Just add a text file to your project, give it the .tt extension, and see the icon change. This means you can use the code gen in your project immediately. No SDK, no DSL, or anything. It's very powerful stuff. There's a great Visual Studio plugin from Clarius Consulting called the T4 Editor that even adds IntelliSense and syntax highlighting, and that's at www.t4editor.net. Yeah. So, Hilton, I'm going to send you a mug, maybe a T-shirt, too, because, uh, yeah, it's true. You've been a listener for a long time, and we've exchanged lots of emails. We've been trying to get to South Africa for a while now. We have, and we will. I, I don't know if you will, but I, I may be going this year. Yeah, well, we'll try and, we'll try and make it work. We'll figure it out. At, uh, I think it's sometime in October. I haven't got the locked-in dates yet. TechEd, of course, is what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. TechEd. And uh, speaking of conferences, we're going to be down in Dev Connections in Orlando very soon. Very soon. I'm going to be doing a new talk down there, which is called Fun with .NET. And uh, this is this stuff that I'm doing with the MIDI is is kind of a clue that some fun things are going to be happening. 
Because you're a fun guy. I am a fun guy, like a mushroom. (laughs) And with that, Richard, let's introduce our guests, uh, Jeremy Miller and David Larrabee. Jeremy is the chief architect for Bayern Software in Austin, Texas. He began his IT career writing shadow IT applications to automate his engineering documentation, then wandered into software development because it looked like more fun. Uh, Jeremy previously worked as a systems architect building mission-critical supply chain software for a Fortune 100 company and learned agile development practices as a .NET consultant at ThoughtWorks, one of the pioneers of agile development. Jeremy is the author of the Open Source Structure Map tool for dependency injection with .NET and the forthcoming Storyteller tool for supercharged fit testing in .NET. Jeremy's thoughts on just about everything software can be found uh, on his weblog, The Shade Tree Developer, at codebetter.com slash blogs slash jeremy.miller, part of the popular CodeBetter site. Jeremy is also a Microsoft MVP for C Sharp. Welcome, Jeremy. Hi, guys. And David Larrabee is president of Exclaim Software, an ISV offering a platform for building document management applications. He has over 10 years' experience designing, developing, and architecting enterprise applications with Microsoft Technologies. David's worked with the .NET framework since the zero day in internal IT, product development, consulting, and rapid prototyping contacts across a wide variety of industries. David is a frequent speaker at local and national developer events, a Microsoft MVP, and a certified Scrum Master. He writes about agile practices, software architecture, and the business of software on the CodeBetter blog network, theblog.com. Welcome, David. Hi, Carl. Hi, Richard. Good to have you guys on. Good to be here. Yeah. So, um... We were talking about the Entity Framework a couple of shows ago, and we got a, a passionate email from Jeremy. Right, Richard? Uh, yes, we did. And uh, and it was interesting. You know, Alt.net has been hovering around here uh, on our minds for, well, pretty much since it was first came into being, which I think was, well, I guess the practice has been going on for a few years, but the name came up sometime last year. And uh, we've got a few emails about it. Folks want to know more. And then uh, then this great email comes from Jeremy. Uh, definitely a different viewpoint on any framework than what was covered in the last show. Not that we don't all love Julie Lerman, because we do. Yeah. And I thought, you know, now's the time. Now yeah, we have an opportunity. Let's get the whole thing on the table. So should we do the EF thing first? Or do you want to talk through alt.net and then set it in the context of why uh, your viewpoint on EF is the way it is? Well, I definitely think we should tell everybody what Alt.net is first. Sure. So just a, a quick background, and, and it kind of ties in the whole entity framework thing. Um, we were at the MVP Summit, uh, which is a conference Microsoft holds for um, MVP awardees, uh, award holders. And we had a really interesting talk with the <clears throat> entity framework team um, talking about, you know, this. At, the, at that time, it was a fairly new idea, just kind of started coming out. Um, and it was kind of a, you know, someone some would have called it a smackdown, but we're trying to compare and hibernate or an object relational mapper. I know you've covered that in previous shows, so we won't go too deep into that, but comparing that to a tool like in hibernate and trying to just do a mind meld and trying to, to grok that. And it was a really passionate kind of heated debate. And after that, I wrote a post, um, called Alt on that saying, look, you know, there's a, there's a, 
a group of people that have been out here for years kind of talking about alternatives to, you know, um, solutions that Microsoft may have provided. So in Hibernate, if you look at that, it's kind of an alternative to, like, the data set approach or a store procedure approach or something like that. Um, and it got a lot of, it got a lot of interest. Uh, really kind of, as I define it, AltaNet simply people looking for alternatives, looking for the best way to do things, whether that leads them to agile, whether that leads them to open source or different, different tools that might be somewhat out of the mainstream. There's a lot of people that are looking at that and, you know, it's time maybe to galvanize a community around there. So that's pretty much the genesis from there. I mean, people kind of picked it up and, and um, maybe took it as a little bit of a call to action, but it's been gaining momentum. Um, I did nothing more than really just give it a name. And, uh, you know, a lot of people that working on this stuff for a long time, it just is kind of come together. Uh, and it's interesting to hear you say that because I've recently sort of had that experience talking with companies where they're just unwilling to use tools that aren't Microsoft's. That they just said, and I rem- and it brings me back to like the eighties where people would say stuff like you can never go wrong buying IBM. That the there's sort of a focus now on Microsoft gives us everything we need. We don't need to go anywhere else. I got this MSDN Universal. You know what what isn't there that I that I could possibly need to be successful as a developer. So Richard, that that very subject or that very uh, very problem, I won't use non-Microsoft tools. Why do I need anything besides what Microsoft has already done? Uh, that's that's a great place where I think Alt.net has an opportunity to add some value to the community. Uh, there's a lot of great tools out there that don't come from Microsoft. In, in some cases, there is a Microsoft equivalent, but the open source or just the alternative tool may be better. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, NUnit and NBUnit are a less friction uh, or provide a lot less friction in in unit testing than in this test. Uh, and in other cases, the other tools give us completely different ways to work. Uh, I know we're going to circle back to this, but taking the example of in Hibernate versus Entity Framework, or, or Link to SQL for that matter, the, the Microsoft offerings are very database-centric. It's built from the idea that you more or less lay out your entire database first and then create strongly typed object wrappers around around the database and then just work off of that data. And Hibernate gives me a completely different way to work. I can work domain model first. I can build my objects and then worry about persisting them later. So some of these tools give us just entirely different opportunities, different venues, different ways to work than we get from mainstream Microsoft tools. And maybe I need to backpedal a little bit on this because, of course, Microsoft's always been big on the third-party market, the, the Telerix and the DevExpresses and all those sorts of companies out there that build tools to work in the Microsoft space. Maybe the thing that's anomalous here that I think a lot of folks are ignoring is that there are open source tools for .NET. Because, of course, we th- when we think open sure. source, we generally think Java. Well, there's a lot of open source tools for .NET. A lot of them that we've that people use on a regular basis, and and Unit was is one that got a lot of legwork. In fact, probably I would say that uh, introduced unit testing to Microsoft. If weren't for that, we probably wouldn't have it in Team System. 
there are a ton of open source tools, and and I think um, one of the things we're kind of interested in is looking looking at the folks or, or gathering the folks that are making those tools, getting them in one room, getting them in in an open spaces conference, and seeing if we can create a venue or or just create an environment where some of that innovation can happen. A lot of innovation. I mean, there's an incredible amount of of innovation happening in open source. I mean, not not to keep returning to the hibernate example. And, and Hibernate has its issues, but it's the leading ORM for for um, for .NET. But if you look at its origins, it, it came from Hibernate. It came from the Java community. So you know, one thing we're looking at is how can how can the .NET community kind of you know in this in this style of you know agile, object oriented um, uh, system building development, can we? How can we create our own area of innovation? I mean, if you look at NUnit and you look at JUnit, there's a refinement there. There's an incredible, you know, there's a, there's, it was thought of fresh, you know, there was a, a fresh, some fresh thinking applied to a unit testing harness. There was fresh innovation coming in from the .NET side. And I think that there are an incredible number of, you know, smart, smart people working with the .NET <clears throat> um, stack. And it's a matter of, I think, connecting those people, getting them to bounce ideas off each other. And open source, I mean, sure, you, you know, it's great to have ISVs and it's great to have components that you bring in. But if you really kind of think of it as a supply chain when you're delivering software, that's a, that's an important piece, right? But another important piece that a lot of people just leave off the table or, or think you can't necessarily get out of MSDN is this open source stuff. Um, so it's, to me, you know, returning your question of, People will only use, or your observation that people will only use Microsoft software seems a little um, obtuse. Uh, not to not to be too inflammatory, but there's a lot of good stuff out there. And it doesn't matter whether it's coming from a pay vendor or it's from an open source project. You know, living on SourceForge, it, it, there may be legal issues um, that you have to contend with, but I think reports of you know. Um, you know, like the the whole copyleft license. If I add this, you know, it makes my it makes my software open source. Um, you know, like the GPL thing. Right. Uh, I, a lot of what we're seeing is really seeing kind of a uh, either weak copyleft or just like an MIT license. There's no you know there's no guarantee. There's certainly a support argument to be made that you know you you want to start incorporating supported components of software into your you know in this product or solution that you're delivering. So that that's one potential issue with this. Um, but as far as development tools go, why not? You know, um, um, I, a lot of this stuff isn't that we're, we're baking it into our product. It's we're using it to create a product or using it to create an assembly line that delivers a product. You know? I, I guess we keep coming back to N-Hibernate because it seems like it was the genesis point of a lot of these ideas. I know they were all around, but it came... You know, I remember being in that meeting at the MVP summit in 2007 and the passion from the right side of the room. And it was you and Scott Bellware and James Kovacs. And there was a six or eight guys. Jeffrey Palermo was there. And the intensity on poor old Dan Simmons trying to talk through some of these things of what they're trying to do with Entity Framework. And it was like you guys were two versions ahead already and had a clear picture of what the end game looked like and wanted, and wanted entity framework to go there. I, I don't know if it was, we were two steps ahead so much as 
we had a very different vision of what we wanted an object relational mapping experience to be. Well, let's get um, into that. Let's get into what uh, what the issues are. What what issues are still out there? What issue? What what things would you like to see different? So I I would say two big issues, and and then I better jump into why those two issues are actually important. Uh, the first and the most obvious problem is the lack of persistence ignorance option. I uh, want an option where my domain objects don't have to have any entity framework infrastructure in them whatsoever. I want my objects to be completely ignorant of how they persisted, where it's going. I don't want any connection to the database. I want to be able to turn the database off, throw entity framework away, and be able to reuse these objects in a completely different context. That's one big issue. I'm getting a little help from the uh, peanut gallery here. Um, and the main reason I want to do this, it comes down to maintainability, or my vision of how we attain maintainability. Uh, one of the biggest drivers for me to get to maintainability is orthogonality. I want to be able to do one thing at a time. I want my business, I want to be able to write my business logic without messing with infrastructure concerns. And it's not just write that logic. I want to be able to test that logic without having to turn on the database, without having to fire up a UI, because I want a very fast feedback cycle to know my business logic is right or wrong. One of my issues with the entity framework uh, is that right now it is optimized to design a database and then generate basically dumb object wrappers around the database structure. And that simply isn't a very suitable answer for creating complex business logic. Uh, it may be great for CRUD screens. It may be great for reporting screens. But if I have rich business logic, I need to probably model that in a different structure than I would for raw data. So the ability to write business logic separately to be able to test it separately is is a very big deal to me. Now, you've obviously uh, talked to Microsoft. Issue, I, before you leave that issue alone, you've obviously talked to Microsoft about this. What was their explanation as to why they decided to architect it the way they did? Um, my, my personal opinion and from things that Dan Simmons and Mike Pizzo and, and some of the other team members said, uh, they simply weren't thinking about that point of view, that the kind of the agile, domain-driven development style of development. I think they were very focused more on a model-driven architecture style of development. Or, uh, Microsoft has been, traditionally, their style of development has been very data-centric, database-first. Um I think all it really amounts to is we had a very different point of view. Um, but maybe to take this in a little bit different direction, one of David's original four thesis or points about uh, all.net is that we're looking around at other development communities, other development traditions, and seeing the great things that we can learn from them. But I'd also add we want to look at the mistakes that other development communities have made. Uh, in, in regards to the entity framework and having any kind of tight coupling from business logic objects to infrastructure, we need to look at the lessons the Java guys learned from enterprise Java beans. Hibernate, IOC containers, dependency injection tools, a lot of these things that we've borrowed or listed from the Java community came about because of their negative experiences with entity Java beans. 
that bound their business logic very tightly to infrastructure concerns. The Java community was finding it very difficult to unit test uh, their business logic because of these container issues. You know, I want to I want to test one very small business scenario. I want to write it. I want to test it. I want to be done. But I've got to fire up a container. I've got to migrate the code. I've got to spin it up. I've got to start the database connections. All do all of this stuff just to get to the point where I can see did the code that I just wrote work. So this is really uh, the fact that I have a dependency on the database anytime I want to test anything. Let's let's lift the the conversation just kind of kind of go up a thousand feet or so. So implicit to what Jeremy's saying, or he's giving you the reasons for a style of work where when we when we have a requirement or we have a work item, say a user story, um, we're looking at that as I need to implement this feature. And that's how we're breaking down work in, in an agile way. If you're doing that, you're not looking at, I need to do this task. I need, I, you know, you're not breaking down a project by, okay, there's one month of data modeling, one month of business logic implementation. And then, you know, of course, all the uh, fancy, you know, Ajax CSS front ends only, you know, take a week. That's to me, that's not, it's, it's not a very uh, sustainable form of, you know, developing. So we're looking at, um, again, looking at another community, looking at Agile and how they're doing it is they're expressing, I'm going to do this feature. And that's the unit of work that the developer works on. So now if we have this data modeling platform in the background, it becomes somewhat hard to add to that or evolve that or continuously design a system that's just built into these broad strata that are really all the tooling all of the, you know, guidance is around do your data model first. Right. Then do your business logic. Then do your thing. How many projects have you guys been on where you spend the first two months doing infrastructure code? Yeah, that just doesn't you know, usually happen. Writing your code gen templates, whatever it is, writing, doing your data modeling. What we're saying is we've had really good success with, you know what, in, in the first week, what we're going to do is we're going to actually write something that a user a business user can grok. They can sit down and say, yes, this is good. No, we want to tilt the project that way. And you know what? Just kind of accepting that change. I mean, that's the, that's the premise of Agile. So if you look at it from a values and principles standpoint, if you start there, your tooling kind of should flow. Your tooling kind of, you know, uh, should be designed to support those values and principles. Now, I think, again, where Microsoft's coming with the EF, their values and principles are data modeling. But if we start to look at the vast majority of just business apps, is that the best way to do it? You know, obviously, data modeling is a huge important thing when you're putting together a, a data warehouse, a data mart, some kind, kind of enterprise strategy for analytics, right, or business intelligence. But all those things presume a database already exists. If we're really starting from scratch here... Because I'm getting tired of saying Greenfield. I'm getting tired of that. It is getting so we're starting from scratch here. We don't the the building a database first makes perfect sense if you're in that waterfall model where we have an entire plan and we know what the whole app looks like. So we're going to start from the foundation and work up. But if we're really actually agile, we don't have that plan. We're learning as we go, and we've got to communicate with the. Uh, the domain expert with the customer saying, does this make sense to you? And showing them data models does not make sense to them. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to the next gripe. 
<laughs> I think we pretty much covered that one. But I think there's some more important parts about here. I mean, it's an interesting thought to say that data modeling first is fundamentally not agile. Are you guys willing to put that out there? Is that what we're talking about? Well, if we put that out there, can I can I explain a little bit more? Sure. Yeah, and there's another point I want to make about brownfield versus greenfield development. Um, so the reason, or the reason for me that I'm not that enthusiastic about starting from database modeling and then working up, uh, we've talked a lot about, or David was talking about evolutionary delivery. I'm building the app one feature at a time in vertical, vertical slices of deliverable functionality. Right. I'm getting in and changing things all the time. So to make this, to make this efficient, to make this responsible, I have to make my code malleable. I'm going to be getting in and out of it a lot. I need to make it safe to change. I need to make it easy to change. One of the, the huge advantages of going at a more of an object-first or even a UI-first approach is we have a lot better tools for changing, refactoring, unit testing, modifying code than we do for the database. Right. I mean, refactoring databases is still a relatively novel concept and fairly challenging to do because you need to preserve the data from change to change. Absolutely. So in my project, current project is a greenfield field application. So we're getting away uh, in Hibernate has a facility to dump a schema out of the in Hibernate mapping. So at will, we dump and regenerate the entire database right now, because it's, it's a small database and we can. Uh, but I want to take on the issue a little bit of brownfield development. So I understand there's, there's a temptation to just take a brownfield database and say, well, this is what we have, so let's go with it. But I learned this lesson in a really hard, painful way last year on a trade capture application. Uh, your business objects are all about behavior and the business logic you need to carry out. The database structure is about what's the best way to structure this data for storage and retrieval. And those don't necessarily, those two forces don't necessarily drive you the same way. Right. What we found out several times is that we needed to start completely divorced from the database model and build an object model that made sense for the, the behavior, the business logic we were trying to carry out. And then we would take on the very painful process of finding a way to map it. And that might be a place where you you drop an OR mapping tool like in Hibernate. Maybe you roll your own. Maybe you you do go down the approach that I'm gonna map I'm gonna map my objects directly to the database, but then that's gonna get transformed into the real objects. There's another opportunity. We've we've been saying in Hibernate and Hibernate in any framework, in any framework. So I'll throw a third choice at you. There's another tool out there called ibatis.net that's a port of a Java project. And it's an OR mapper of sorts that's optimized for brownfield conditions to give you much more fine-grained control over the SQL and the mapping you do. It's, it's generally a little bit more work to use than in Hibernate would be for greenfield code, but ibatis can do anything. It's like a wrench that can go anywhere. And that's a totally different approach and a kind of a third choice for OR mapping. Do you know the perfect formula for building and managing websites? Follow me here. Zero effort plus Sitefinity CMS 
equals infinity in website development. That's right. Telerik challenges you to explore its innovative Sitefinity content management system and offers you a chance to win a sleek Zoom MP3 player or a Sitefinity license. These cool awards could be yours if you only answer a few easy questions about Telerik Sitefinity CMS. All you have to do is watch five short movies and see how easy it is to build infinitely beautiful websites with zero effort. You'll learn some cool facts about Sitefinity and the effortless creation of websites. So go to www.sitefinity.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a free Zoom. I'm I'm getting a vision here now of you know so many agile projects are invariably brownfield typically from struggling waterfall projects. And that almost seems like that's the way that the agile methodology has grown up. Well, the old way isn't working. We're willing to try a new way, but we already have this baggage. And, and it's interesting to me to really start thinking hard about what agile looks like in a greenfield scenario where these things are different. And traditionally, we've always built our apps data first and made the objects fit. Now you're telling me I'm going to build objects first and make the data fit. Yeah, the I mean, clearly, um, if if agile is the peanut butter, object oriented development is the chocolate. You know, I think that <laughs> those two go really well together. Um, but it's it's more of an app centricity. I mean, I think you know, back to alt. What's the alt mean? It means you know, know your alternatives, right? We're professional developers. We should have a robust bag of tricks. We should also be, if we need to, be able to go in and employ things like design patterns, employ things like. You know, we should we should also make a community. We should connect up with each other so we can, you know, bounce ideas off each other. And, you know, it's almost like the developer support group, right? We should have a whole, you know, huge bag of tricks that we can bring to bear on this stuff. I just make one, want to make one last point about Agile. And Agile, to me, at its heart, is where it is today, is 100% of recognition that there's no such thing as precognition when it comes to software. There's no, there's no way that you can get a bunch of, you know, technical, smart, you know, engineering types, whatever, and users to agree or understand what the system is going. You can, you can invest an incredible amount in requirements, but then what are the business conditions? Are the business conditions going to change? So there's a huge, um, respect for change. So rather than trying to predict all that up front, it doesn't mean developers can do whatever they want. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be specific about the software we're developing. It means that we're going to reserve the right to reprioritize iteration over iteration. So if we're doing we're on a week long or a two week long cycle, that's a huge advantage to business people to be able to prioritize. Now getting them to prioritize is another issue, but you know, agile is it should be known is as hard, if not harder, to do as waterfall, it requires a tremendous amount of dis- discipline, but it's really about that freedom to change, the freedom to refine the system as you go, rather than deluding yourself that you know some Microsoft Project Gantt chart will will be followed to the letter. Um, and you know something. So again, we're back to values and principles. We're back to this idea is something we should all be cognizant of. And hey, if it's a brownfield project and we still want to do the OO thing. Great. We've got iBatist on that. That's a, that's an alternative. 
we may not use in Hibernate. Now, right. If it's a data modeling project, we've got, you know, perhaps their entity framework comes into play. It's an alternative as well. Putting a bow on this, we'll, and we'll move on to some other elements of Alt.net. The the big thing on, on Entity Framework was that it was still fundamentally data-centric, and you guys wanted to be able to do something more N-Hibernate-like where, well, we, you talked about persistence ignorance, and I think you briefly explained it. Maybe we got to clarify this, make sure I get it right, too. I want to be able to store my object without knowing anything about where it's being stored and be able to say, now give it back to me and get it back, and it's the same. And I really don't need but to know more than that. That's one of the major goals. I mean, it's the, the real underlying goals. Um, to be able to write the business logic separately, to let the business objects diverge in structure is another big thing. And it has to be, it has to be cheap to set up test data, to set up my business objects to run little fine-grained tests. Right. It's okay if some infrastructure, some data access gets in there as long as I can diverge in the structures as I need to, and those objects are really fast for me to set up little testing scenarios. And, and all of this comes back to that uh, that ability to ship a feature every week or two weeks and have the customer change their mind steadily until they get exactly what it is they want and not build up any baggage along the way from that. It's that, absolutely. If if we're going to work this in small chunks, we're going to work adaptively, we have to have a lot of feedback loops built into our system to make sure that we're always doing the right thing. And persistence ignorance is just one more mechanism and means to be able to get finer grain feedback cycles. Um, here's a question to pose to you just about the sort of philosophy of alt.net and uh, how you think, I mean, forgetting about the tools for a minute, what is your advice to developers in your approach to agile development that is reflected in the architecture of alt.net? Well, I, I, I don't, it is, it's kind of a loose confederation more than, than an architecture at this point. But what I would say is I personally have received a tremendous amount of value from getting involved in community. So if you're interested in these things and if you kind of, you know, think we might be onto something here, or, you know, are reading Blogs. I mean, there's a there's a, a way to get involved in the community. You might be in Sheboygan, right? Sheboygan. There probably is a .NET developer group in Sheboygan, but maybe the Agile community isn't super strong there. Maybe it is. I don't. Not to pick on Sheboygan, but I think that um, getting out there, getting involved, either starting a blog or just reading them or asking questions or making these connections, that is a, is a tremendous way to learn. Uh, we're having these open spaces events. It's kind of an unconference. There's no real um, structure. There's a very simple simple rules and, and the conference kind of self-manages, self-organizes and, and people pitch topics and stuff like that. So if you can come into one of those and we hope to have more of them, um, that's a great way to learn. You know, connecting up with people um, way smarter than you has always been my strategy for uh, learning, you know, solving pain in development. Absolutely. Um, I think Another thing is just be introspective. You know, in Agile, you have this thing, notion of the, the retrospective or the, the iteration review, right, where you look back and you say, all right, last week it sucked. It, you know, and in hibernate mapping for this brownfield project sucked. So, you know what, we're going to switch. Or 
you know what, it, it stinks that, you know, the user stories we got didn't have any kind of criteria on them for acceptance, or we don't know how to know that we're done, right? So we're going to try to do a better job. Well, you can do that as an individual developer, too. You can say, where am I experiencing pain? I mean, that could be as simple as, I, you know, I'm experiencing pain in my wrist. <laughs> I'm going to switch to a trackball. I mean, those are things we all do, but let, apply it to the larger setting of how you're developing software. Think about it. And um, Jeremy has this, you know, he's fond of using the Abraham Lincoln. I, I can't remember the exact, you know. Oh, <laughs> I think to paraphrase, if, if I had four hours to uh, to chop down a tree, I would spend three of them sharpening the saw. <laughs> nice. But, you, you know, it's funny. Usually we only do that introspection after the project has, quote, unquote, failed. You know, it, it's just a question of are you going to catch or decide to catch those mistakes in planning early? The number of times I've seen people say, well, the deadline for stories was the 20th and the 20th is passed. So we're not working on stories anymore. It's got nothing to do with whether they're right. <laughs> Or they're done. It's that the deadline went by. So that, Vito, and that always that always drove me nuts when I was working waterfall projects. Uh, what's what what we're talking here? I think goes back to the point I was trying to make earlier on. If you want to do agile or any iterative process, you have to be very adaptive. You have to be getting a lot of feedback. Okay, we, we wrote a design down on the whiteboard. We made a design spec. We wrote some requirements of how we think the user's going to use this little widget on the screen. You got to take the approach sometimes that you don't know anything. You don't know if the code you just wrote works until you prove it. So you want to set yourself up with a lot of feedback cycles, a lot of feedback loops. Uh, and I think that's a lot of what Agile does. I think that's a lot of the, the tooling and Design practices that we espouse in Alt.net are largely driving towards that direction. How can I, in smaller chunks, how can I know that I'm on the right path or that I'm on the wrong path and correct? And it strikes me, looking through the sort of Alt.net values and practices stuff here, you're not picking any one method here. I see test-driven development. I see behavior-driven development. I see domain-driven design. Uh, you know, the the uh, different variations on Agile, Scrum, and, and, and so on are all here. It almost sounds like when you guys all get together, it's really an opportunity to debate. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think we're even looking at, we, we've been talking a lot about open source. We've been talking about ORM. We've been talking about Agile, but there's more to the world than that. I mean, what about mashups? What about RESTful services? What about OpenID? What about OAuth? These are things that, you know what, they're starting to gain traction out there, but there isn't much buzz in the .NET developer community. You, you know, you, you, you're oddball people that are really interested in it, but um, let's explore that, you know. And it's not necessarily about being prescriptive, about, like, there will never, you know, I really see us coming out with an alt.net process, you know, and you can get a rubber stamp that says, all right, this now you're alt.net official, officially. It's not that rigid. It's more about providing the venue for people to discuss, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of the guys that are coming to the Seattle event, and I, I provided a, a, a link to you, you can put in the show notes, are really interested in functional languages, you know, are really interested in um, dynamic languages. And right. these are things that if we can express an interest in Microsoft, you know, I think Oslo and D are probably pretty, you know, 
potentially interesting things, but there's more to the world than that. What's under that declarative service? So we need to make our voice known. And, you know, Microsoft, to their credit, is getting better. We've had some really um, great engagement uh, from guys like Josh Holmes, uh, who's an architectural evangelist. Uh, we've had great engagement from Glenn Block, guy from P&P. Um, Matt Podwasaki is a guy uh, with the consulting services. They you know, are, as you, you know, say those, our- if you rattle those names off, I'm thinking a lot of those guys came out of the community itself. Yeah, and got hired. That's by what Microsoft. I was thinking too. We had Josh Holmes on the show. These are—they may be Microsoft guys, but they're guys that were tightly tied to the community before they had the board chip installed. Right. You know, totally. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's a, it's a funny joke with Josh. That's but for him. Hey, let's um, give some kudos to Dan Simmons because he waded in and really wanted to hear what you guys had to say, and I think it's going to impact where Entity Framework is going. I also you know, think that I also think the climate at Microsoft has sort of gotten into that. Let's find the biggest and brightest guys in the community that are doing good things and hire them. And you know, you see that with Scott Guthrie's team, right? He's got a he's got a lot of a lot of great people from uh, from open source projects too, as well. Uh, absolutely, but at the same time, they don't get a buy. You know, at the same time. I mean, we're going to complain if there if there's something that we see that that's going counter to you know maybe Entity Framework just isn't on my radar. Maybe it's something I personally don't care about. But right. you know, I think engagement is key. And you know what? Yep. When you're when you're trying to understand or come to terms, or uh, it's going to get a little heated. You know, arguments happen as long as we kind of go into it with the idea that you know no one's going to get their feelings hurt. This is right. we're just discarding politeness. For the sake of efficiency, mm-hmm. you know, I think it, it, that's um, maybe some, where some of the, the arguments come from. But you know what? It's okay to argue. We're, we're all armchair philosophers anyway, right? You well, know? you know, that's the story of the regional directors, too. I mean, it's this is what we do, Richard and I. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We're, maybe on a different angle, but very much a similar things. Uh, we sort of touched on this. We sort of, I feel like we're walking around architecture here. So I, I want to bring it into the forefront because I've never felt that the Microsoft tools were really great at architectural design. It seems like we make these architectures, we draw them on cocktail napkins or whiteboards or noodle them up in Visio or, or, and argue them through, and then they die. We ignore them and go off and build the software. And I just, I, I'm interested in your points of view on, on how we can do architecture better. Well, honestly, from my standpoint, yeah, I'm not going to argue for no upfront design, and that's that's a silly extreme too. But again, back back to feedback, uh, I think it needs to be an adaptive thing. I think we need to learn as as we go with architecture. So I like I like agile modeling practices from Scott Ambler. I like doing whiteboard net whiteboard drawings. I like doing a design as as a team um, to try to communicate and socialize designs faster and get more people, more minds, more eyeballs on designs faster. Um, another thing I would say about design is um, start trying to borrow some pages from lean programming and lean manufacturing. I should only be building only what I need right now. I should never be making the assumption or putting myself in a position where I'm going to say, well, we're going to need this in six months. So I'm going to figure out how to bake this in right now, and that'll make it easier then. We've got to stop doing that. We need to do pull design. I have this feature. I need to deliver right now. 
I need to do only the infrastructure I need for this, but at the same token, I need to make sure that I haven't closed down the possibilities for later. I have to make sure that I can come in and do this other harder thing that's on the horizon in six months. Well, you know, we talk about refactoring code all the time. I just don't see us refactoring architecture very often. And I think that's, if you're only going to build just sufficient architecture, you got to be prepared to tear it apart and rebuild it. Well, yes, yes and no, but let's, let's talk about that a little bit. So one of the things that's on, on my mind right now is something from, from um, I believe it was coined by Robert T. Martin. I'm not exactly sure. The open-close principle, right? Software should be open for extension, but closed for modification. I should be <laughs> able, I ideally, well, let's, let's talk about this. It sounds like a contradiction, but in a way it's not. So I think we can all agree that it's it's riskier and harder to go in and change existing code than it is to write all new code, right? Definitely. Okay. So now let's take it from this perspective. How can we write systems in such a way that we can minimize the chances of needing to go in and change code afterwards to extend it? Um, you know, it's plug-in models, sure, but what that really drives you through to is orthogonality. I'm going to have a class that does only one thing, so the only possible reason I need to go in and change that class is if that one change, that one thing needs to change. If we can build classes with very, very cohesive classes. This guy does data access. This guy gets me configuration. This guy does this particular business logic operation. Um, and, and keep them kind of ignorant of how each other works. That can give us a lot more, a lot more ability to change the system without breaking additional code. So the whole idea of being able to evolve a design and just change it as we go, it doesn't come for free. It takes a, a very conscious effort and decision to apply good design philosophy and good design principles to everything you do as you go. Otherwise, it's going to fall down. You're going to churn. You're, you're going to tear things out. You're going to thrash, and it's going to hurt. Well, So, I mean, it, you've got these... Uh, philosophical principles around design to create them as independent enough that we're not going to end up throwing them away every time we we do some refactoring. But architecturally, I guess every so often you get sort of consolidation events in architecture where these five separate things actually could fit under one umbrella, and now I do have to revise them all. I would say strategically, you're going to have, and there's various, I know Eric Evans has a a name that I can't think of, but the aha moment, something that you haven't realized before that these five things should really be this one place. We call it right. a duplicating code. I need to find a way to centralize this. Every time I make this kind of change, I have a shotgun surgery smell. Every time I make a change, I have to go to six or seven places to make the same change. That means they need to be pulled in. Right. Well, what I've found through my career is when you hit these aha moments, you need to you need to follow through on it. Um, some of the best design decisions I've, I've ever made have been from little architectural realignments um, that happened very late in the game that ended up in vastly improving in architecture and set us up very well for the second release. That's, that's not something to feel bad about or, or to feel guilty about or, 
I didn't do my upfront design right. That's simply an opportunity to make your system better. Richard, I think one of the things, one of the roles I see as an architect having in an agile project is to enforce ideas or patterns such as layered architecture, enforce patterns such as, you know, facades or service layers or things that will provide you an insulation from this kind of these architectural changes. And let's draw a distinction between refactoring which is improving the design of the code without changing the behavior and the design change. Design changes happen. You know, they really do happen. And if you have an architecture, if you've put a little um, thought or, you know, evolved that thought over time into making an architecture that has partitions in it, where you're understanding what the large grain dependencies are, or your package model is, then, you know, it... it those changes can be done. Sometimes they do hurt. That's where you use a branch. You know, that's where you branch and merge. Or that's where you, all hands on deck, we're going to make this change. It's for the better. We've said, you know what, this is an investment in the quality. And that's something we take very seriously. This is an investment in the quality of the code base. The long-term vision to say, if we make this change here, a year from now, everything we do will benefit. Right now, it's going to hurt. It is. And, and, you know, as far as architectural tools go or enabling this, we're not, I think, is it XPI, the format for uh, interchange of, uh, like, UML diagrams or something? We're, we, the storage mechanism, the persistence mechanism for the architecture is the team. It's not one person sitting, you know, in front of rational rows designing, you know, an executable UML thing. I mean, there certainly is camp out there, but where we've had good luck is actually Involve the team in the architecture. Leverage these smart people that you're in the room with. Um, get them to buy in. Get them to understand. Anyone, you know, in our shop, anyone's kind of expected to take an architectural question and be able to whiteboard the thing. Um, that has a huge advantage to, you know, if you're having a turnover issue, someone's rating your staff, um, if you have some kind of problem with, you know, someone, you know, the whole bus problem, right, the bus factor, someone gets hit by a bus. Right. Um, it, it creates a more sustainable form of development. And so a lot of these things really, and, and, and it's really, it's hard to get, you know, there's a lot of skill that goes into this. And I think by connecting up to people, you can shorten your learning curve. Um, it's, but it's hard to do. There's no doubt about it. But if you're doing it right, the benefits are huge. Guys, we're running out of time here. Uh, let's point some folks at resources around alt.net. Make sure we catch them. Um, well, we have, uh, altnet.org. Yes. Altnet.org is the, um, kind of a, a website where we're putting some of the conferences we're having. That's where you'd sign up for the conferences. We hope to build that into a little bit of a, a resource for connecting up with other altnetters as, as, uh, they call themselves. Um, and yeah, you sign up, use an open ID. Go there, click the link, identify yourself, and uh, you can get an account, and you'll see conferences as they become available, and you can register for them. Um, also, on that site, uh, we have uh, uh, a page for our Seattle event, which is, at this time, unfortunately, um, all booked up. But, you know, if you're interested to kind of see what the events are, there's a little bit of information there. You can go look at the participant list. We have a pretty rocking uh, group of people coming out there. Um, we also have, I'd point you to altnetpedia.com. Um, that's a good resource for 
just community. So it's a wiki. So a lot of people are like putting jobs up there. Um, there are some ideas about the practices. You know, it's, if you're just getting started, it's a good place to go to uh, get a sense of all the stuff we're talking about. We dropped a lot of processes and names and patterns and ideas and principles. You know, we're trying to aggregate them there. And um, yeah, there's some background there if you're interested in the in you know how this came to be and, and where we're headed. Um, I'd also, Jeremy, you want to mention the MSDN article? Uh, they're in the March episode of MSDN magazine in the end bracket. Uh, I have a very brief article that just kind of explains some of the the four points of, of all that and a little bit of what we're about as just a, a short introduction. All right, guys, Jeremy Miller. David Larrabee, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's been a good follow-up conversation to uh, our last one. And uh, we'll see you guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. .net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 